With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. That was a poem that I really connected with for a long time. My mom would always say home is where the heart is. We moved around a lot when I was a kid. In that journey of trying to belong, I kind of took that poem, Diaspora Blues, and kind of shifted it around to where I want to go and what I want to emanate. So I ended up writing a poem of my own that reflected that, and it was called Enough. So here we are, foreign enough to be foreign at home, home enough to be home in the foreign. And with that, Somehow I have come to see when I am at home in my heart, I am always enough for everywhere. My name is Naz Khan, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Naz Khan, an educator, writer, and lifelong learner with a background in refugee education, curriculum development, and interfaith dialogue. Naz's debut children's book, Room for Everyone, came out a little more than a year ago, and when my daughter and I discovered it, we were just really moved by it, and we're really excited to have the opportunity to have a chat with her on the pod. Through beautiful illustrations and entertaining rhymes, you'll find yourself falling in love with the journey of others depicted in Room for Everyone. Look, if you've ever been to another country where, let's just say the traffic laws are a little bit lax, you'll appreciate one of my favorite lines from Nas's book. And it goes, how can any more people get in? We're already smushed like sardines in a tin. Nas currently lives in Washington, D.C., but has lived all over the world, including Jubal, Cairo, Nairobi, Bangalore, Berkeley, San Diego, and New York. Naz works as an education coordinator at an open book foundation, a literacy organization that connects young people in the D.C. area with authors, illustrators, and books. Naz is also part of Reading is Fundamental, the nation's leading champion for children's literacy, which recently launched its second annual Rally to Read 100, which runs through the end of March, designed to motivate children to read, starting with a pledge to read 100 books. This is a program we've talked about on the past on this podcast. You can learn more at rallytoread.org. Again, I cannot recommend Naz's debut book, Room for Everyone, enough. But for now, we hope you'll enjoy Sharon's conversation with our new friend, Naz. Naz, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. This is my first ever podcast, so I really appreciate it. I'm so excited that we are your first ever podcast and that I get to talk to you by myself without Raman today. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I will miss having Raman here. I was excited to meet him, but it is a thrill to be here with you. 
I know we can we can totally guilt trip him <laughs> for the entirety of the episode so that when he listens to it later, he can kick himself for missing this one. So I, I encourage you to do that today. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> and so Naz, we we always ask this question. I'm gonna ask it to you too. Where are you from? So my typical elevator answer when people ask me that question is I was born in India. I grew up in the Middle East and I moved to the United States when I was about 12, first Alabama, then California. And now I live in Washington, D.C. That is such a succinct elevator pitch. Like it really (laughs) does sound like you've practiced it many, many times before. Yeah, it's definitely like my kind of go-to answer. Yeah. And then, you know, it kind of keeps the door open if people want to know, you know, where in the Middle East or, you know, how did you get to the East Coast? And and if people don't want to know more, that's fine too. So Yeah. Do you ever like just start from the Alabama part of the story? Or do you always I, I would I would think it maybe depends on where someone is when they're asking you or what the situation is, but are you ever just like, Oh yeah, I, I kind of spent most of my time in Alabama? No, actually, I I came through Alabama initially, so that was mm-hmm. my starting point. Yeah, but I was only there for I think a part of seventh grade. Oh, okay. So that was my landing spot, and then I think it was like eighth grade that I moved to California, and then spent high school in the Bay Area, and then college in San Diego. Got it. So where would you consider home then? My heart. Um, <laughs> I guess you know. I mean, right now home is. DC, DC is the longest that I've stayed in one place. Yeah. You know, I think that idea of home, there's there's actually a poem that I often go to sometimes or that I'll share with people. It's by this Nigerian writer, Ijeoma Umebenyu. Uh-huh. And it's this poem called Diaspora Blues. And the poem says, so here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. And that was a poem that I really kind of connected with for a long time. And then I remember at some point, my mom would always say home is where the heart is. We moved around a lot when I was a kid. Right. And I think that idea of home is where the heart is really kind of resonated with me as well. Yeah. And I, in that journey of trying to belong, I kind of took that poem, Diaspora Blues, and kind of shifted it around to where I want to go and what I want to emanate. So I ended up writing a poem of my own that reflected that, and it was called Enough, and it goes, goes something like this. So, so here we are, foreign enough to be foreign at home, home enough to be home in the foreign. And with that, somehow I have come to see when I am at home in my heart, I am always enough for everywhere. That is so beautiful, <laughs> Naz. Thank you. First of all, that's very beautiful. And secondly, I'm so impressed that you have memorized it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I got everything right, but it, <laughs> it's there somewhere. But yeah, and I definitely had, I think, I wanted to make reference to the poem, so I wrote the writer's name and my little notes here. So, Oh, that's great. So, okay. So going back to moving around mm-hmm. that part of your life. So was that the part of your life where you were you moving to different places within the Middle East So before seventh grade? Yeah, I kind of. So I was born in India, but my parents were living in Saudi Arabia at the time. Okay. So we were in Saudi, and I don't usually get into these details, but since you're asking, <laughs> so when <laughs> I, I was around- <laughs> I want to know it all. <laughs> so when I was around three, we, we went to Ireland for a year. So my first time going, attending a school of any sort was in Ireland, in Dublin. 
And in that situation, I think I was like, you know, this one brown kid in a line of white Irish kids. Sure. But then the following yeah. year, we were back in Saudi Arabia for for kindergarten. And in that situation, you know, I had, I think, a Lebanese kindergarten teacher and an Indian mm-hmm. American kindergarten teacher. And classes were in English, but there were also, there was some Arabic in there as well. Yeah. So I was in school in Saudi till maybe third grade. And then summer of third grade, the Gulf War started. So we went to India and I went to an international school in Bangalore, where my family's from. So I was in India for a year and then, you know, kind of went back to Saudi Arabia. So it's been, it's kind of been like a back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. But Saudi is a big part of my life as, a, as is India. Yeah. And of course the United States, cause that's, that's always been home. Even though I was born in India, I was always an American citizen. Mm-hmm. So growing up, I went to international school and I, I, you know, I know one of the questions that you typically ask your, your um, audience members is related to, you know, what is, was your early childhood and when did you feel different? Right. And I've always felt different, but it was never a bad thing. It was always something to celebrate because I was in that international school environment. Yeah. Yeah. And you were around other kids that were from different cultures and different countries and probably also moving around a lot as well, right? Or at least had lived in maybe at least one other country. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, even in my city where I live, Jubail, and in my school, there were lots of Indians and Pakistanis and people from Bangladesh and the Philippines. And mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of white presenting American kids and also white kids from Europe and South America. And so there was kind of just like an understanding that we're all different. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the the norm. And even now I feel like the environments that I feel most comfortable in are are those where there's other third culture kids or, you know, folks who have mixed families or come from mixed backgrounds. Sure. So you were, you said you were U.S. citizen, which I'm making some assumptions, but mom and dad were U.S. citizens and they happened to be in the Middle East for business? Like how? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. So my dad left India when he was probably 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. And he first went to Europe. So he was in Germany for a good number of years and then immigrated over to the United States. Got it. And I guess the 60s, 70s. Yep. And then my mom came over in the 70s. So they were already American citizens. Got it. Yeah. And so you were an expat kid. I was. I was. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) The rumors are all true. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm formulating a better idea. Okay, got it. So you were an expat kid going to international school Mm -hmm. in very diverse communities, which is amazing. When your family came back to the U.S., did that feel like a transition for you then? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. It it not in the ways that people expect. I think a lot of people think, oh, when you move to the country, you know, how do you speak good English and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But obviously mm-hmm. English was my first language. But it's interesting, actually, when I moved, I moved to Alabama. And one of the first things that I was told by my classmates was, You talk funny. Huh. You talk like a Yankee. Uh-huh. And I had no idea what a Yankee was. Now <laughs> it's a really funny, you know, later on in life, I was like, that was a really weird thing to say to this like Indian girl who just moved here from Saudi Arabia. But right, that was right. kind of my intro to the South. And 
it was interesting. I went to a, I went to a Bible school Mm -hmm. and I was probably one of a couple of kids who wasn't baptized. So that was very much, you know, a part of me learning how to navigate the newness. And I, it was the first time that I think all of a sudden me being different meant that I had to suddenly represent my culture and a continent of people. That was, that was very new to me. And that, and I definitely felt a lot of pressure. Yeah. I never felt less than Mm -hmm. actually, ironically, the first time that I think that sense of being perceived as less than came when I moved to California. Mm -hmm. And I I remember this moment where my, my mom and I and my grandma, I think we were in the car, we had just moved there and we're driving. And then there was a group of kids playing basketball. And then they kind of threw the basketball at our car and just yelled like, immigrants, get out or something like that. Oh no. And it was the first time that I kind of heard that word immigrants sounding like a curse word almost. And I think that was probably the first memorable moment where I was like, oh, someone thinks that I'm less than because of what I look like in this way or how they perceive me to be. Yeah. And you were eighth grade at that time, I think you had said, right? Yeah, it was seventh or eighth grade. Yeah. Seventh or eighth grade. What part of California did you live in? Initially, it was all in the Bay Area, but the Bay Area okay. is actually a lot more diverse than people think. Yeah, it, it really is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some conservative pockets there. So we were living in Concord initially, and then we moved to Berkeley, mm-hmm. which, as, as you may know, is a completely different situation Yes, where yeah. it's quite diverse. And, you know, I went to a school where we had, you know, a high school English class where we were reading authors of color and there was a real conscientious effort to diversify the the books and the types of books that yep. we were reading and i feel really grateful for that yeah that's amazing and and so in the neighborhood that you lived in in the bay area was that very diverse or was it was it pretty monolithic as well you know i was only in that neighborhood for about 4 years okay only for high school yeah so my my cousin actually lived up the block, so she, and she was about my age. Oh, that's great! Yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know, so that I I did feel a sense of belonging. My neighbors were pretty friendly. That's good. It wasn't, I would say, predominantly whiter neighborhood, but but that it wasn't in a way that made me feel like I didn't belong. I never felt like I didn't belong mm-hmm. in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. In high school, I was probably it, I was definitely the only at least visible Muslim or Mm -hmm. vocally identifying Muslim. And there must've been maybe like three or four Indians in the school. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a minority. That's a major minority. Yeah. Yeah. I remember we, there was this club on campus called like Pride and Diversity. Yeah. Oh no. I feel like I, there's a, this is a story. Yep. Right. (laughs) Where all the students of color come together and like talk about diversity issues. Yeah. You know, all, all those things. And how Um, many, how many people were in the club? It was kind of open to anyone. I I guess like maybe 12, 15 kids would show up at any given time. That's that's a a fair number. I think I thought you were going to say like, that it would be the three brown kids in the school or no, something like no, that. No, no, Yeah. Um, okay. So it's better than that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what did you, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I think when I was really little, I, 
I must have gone to SeaWorld or something. And I think I wanted to be like a dolphin trainer or something like that. Oh, um, yeah. Of course, this was, this is before I learned about all the, all the challenges within that world. But, um, right. But I do, I do remember in the fifth grade, I took a writing class and I had this teacher from New Zealand who had written his first book. And um, we were all super excited. And he, I remember him writing in my book saying, you know, I could see you being a writer one day. And so that seed of writing was definitely planted. But to me, it was like going to the moon or going to Mars, not something that was actually attainable. And that didn't happen till, till many, many, many years later. So did you pursue that though as a career or, I mean, or like as a, as a degree? Oh, no, no, not at all. Um, so I, in undergrad, I actually studied religion Uh and Middle East studies. And of course my parents were like, what are you going to do with that? You know, (laughs) but I was really interested in conflict resolution. Um, I think I'd mentioned we had gone to India during the Gulf War, but what was happening in India at that time was there were there were inter-religious riots going on at that time. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of really piqued my interest in interfaith harmony work. My family was kind of involved with that. And so I was, you know, I wanted to bring peace to the world and of you know, have people understand, you know, that we're all the same part of one human family and all of that yeah. stuff. So And so your parents, your your parents were like, no, you've got to be a doctor or an engineer or whatever, right? I don't, I don't think they <laughs> what said, did, Yeah, what do they want you to be? I don't think they said no. I think they were just totally confused. Got it. Even though even though they were doing that kind of work? My dad is an engineer. Okay. And he has an engineer mind. Like he's very calculated. He likes math. Yeah. Like things are very clear cut for him. Sure. So, you know, the idea of a liberal arts degree was, it was just kind of baffling. Mm-hmm. My mom was actually, she she was involved in a domestic violence prevention organization. Yep. So, you know, she was, she was kind of open to things that are a little bit more, you know, social justice oriented. Yeah. I mean, both my parents are very service oriented people and, you know, kind of instilled that idea of, oh yeah, you want to do something for your community and, and, and things like that. So that, that was definitely a part of my upbringing, I would say. Sure. I I remember we had, I think when I was in high school, my parents kind of adopted, for lack of a better word, uh, a refugee family and kind of helped them out. And I think that was kind of my introduction to the refugee world. And I ended up doing a master's in refugee education. And so my, my professional background is actually in refugee resettlement and refugee education. And how did mom and dad feel when you went from liberal arts degree to completely focusing your time professionally on on nonprofit and humanitarian causes? I think they got it. I don't think it was a surprise. Okay, I that's think, good. Yeah, I do think what was really hard for them was me moving to another country and I think and and then feeling a little bit helpless, that, you know, that, like, what do we do? Like, where is she? And this was like the pre-cell phone era. So, you know, like. Wait, so I, where did you move? This is when you moved back to Saudi Arabia? Like where, where in this, I'm trying to track all of the countries you've been to. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, so high school was in Berkeley and then I yep. went to college in San Diego. And when I was yep. in college, I, I studied abroad in Egypt. In Egypt. Got yeah. it. 
And so that's where I was kind of introduced to refugee Mm -hmm. services and refugee law. I ended up taking a class in refugee law and that took me to uh, Lebanon. And so I did a summer program at a refugee camp in Lebanon and that kind of blew my world. And after that, I, I just knew that that was the path for me at that time. Yeah. So after college, I, you know, I was like, okay, mom and dad, I'm going to go to Lebanon. I'm going to go back. <laughs> and, you know, it was, you know, so what do we tell the whole family? Yeah. You know, that whole thing. But, but at the same time, you know, my parents, my dad had left India at 16 and didn't go back to India right. for 10, 12 years. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they yeah. spent time in the Middle East. They traveled a lot. So I kind of yep. put back on them saying, well, I think I'm the way that I am because you. Because of you. Because of <laughs> But, you know, kind of bringing it back also to the story, I think one of the things that was challenging, you know, when you move around and you get to experience all these different places and people and cultures and moments of just like magic and wonder, it's really mm -hmm. hard because you want to share that with other people. Yeah. And you want that world to be one world instead of feeling like, okay, I have that part of myself that, you know, can understand a certain joke in Arabic, but also loves this particular like Indian movie from the 80s. And you want, you want more and more people to just be able to appreciate all the different things that you've been able to, to love. Yep. And that's one of the things that I think, you know, kind of bringing it back to, to books and storytelling is books do that. You know, you get to like just open up a page and you enter a world. And that's what made my transition to the United States really easy is because, you know, I, I read the same books that other kids were reading. I love the Babysitter's Club and right. Lois Lowry was my favorite author and I'd never met a Jewish person, but, you know, I had read books that had Jewish characters in them. So like, you know, all these things informed my, my understanding of the world without, without actually being in these particular places. And that's something that really drives me to, to do storytelling yeah. And really bring it into my world. You're so right about that. I mean, books really are, they're such a beautiful way that we can connect with each other and share experiences with each other without actually doing that synchronously, right? So you're so right about that. I never actually thought about it. But like when she said Babysitter's Club, I thought of Claudia, you know, <laughs> who was like my favorite one out of all of them. And Totally. Like you feel like you know the same people yes. because you really get an intimate look into the characters and their experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So you started talking about it. Let's keep talking about it. How did you go from traveling around into places where your parents were very worried about you <laughs> and doing refugee work and all of these great things to eventually penning your own book and tell us about this book and what inspired it. Yeah. So one of my jobs took me to Kenya, uh -huh. to Nairobi. I was working at a refugee resettlement agency there. And one of the programs I was working on was with unaccompanied refugee minors. So kids who are going to transition into the foster care system. But really there wasn't, I really believe in the power of story to help people process things or explore ideas without being too vulnerable. And I just didn't, couldn't find the right stories for the kids that I was working with. So I remember I had a coworker, Melvin, who loved doing cartoons. 
So I was like, Melvin, we should create our own like little graphic novels and comic strips for the kids so that we can talk about some of these issues. And so it was not part of my job description at all. But, you know, we would sit there for hours just like mapping out these stories and like creating them. And it was a really cool thing to do with him and the kids. And I think I, you know, whenever I came back to the United States, I would fill my suitcase with picture books that I could bring back for all our staff and the programs Mm -hmm. that we were working with because stories were just such a wonderful way to just like see yourself, see possibilities. And I don't know, I, as you can tell, I'm a book person. Yeah. So, (laughs) and again, none of this was part of my job, but I made it part of my job. Right. Right. Of course. And so there was this storytelling piece to me that was always there that always understood the power of it. And, you know, I, I grew up with this, the story of, Shahrazad, right? Who's the main mm-hmm. character in A Thousand and One Nights, um, or The Arabian Nights, as a lot of people know it. Yep. And how she, it was through the power of story that she saved not only her own life, but the life of all her people and transformed the heart of this king who was killing people, right? And so mm-hmm. that power of story really was palpable yep. in, in my heart. Mm-hmm. And I could see it. I could see hearts light up and eyes twinkle when I told the right story at the right time for the right reason to like a specific kid. Yeah. So that really ignited something in me. And then I remember I went to Zanzibar for, I, I went to Tanzania for work. And then I went to Zanzibar, which is an island that's part of Tanzania. And I was on this bus ride and they have these buses called Dala Dalas, which is basically a truck with benches. And I'm sitting there with my friend. And I've been on crowded buses before, but this was this was next level. It's like chickens and buckets and kitchen sinks getting hauled into the truck. And I couldn't see my friend. I couldn't see my feet. I couldn't feel my body because it was so crowded. And I just remember sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, this should be a children's book. Like this would be like the chaos and the fun. And yeah, I think what the reason it stuck out for me was because it was super fun and everyone literally was wiggling and giggling in the Dala Dala. Right. And I wanted to capture that feeling and capture that feeling of community. And, you know, even when things are a little tough, you know, you can kind of move and make room in a way that's like, ah, fine, I have to do this. And you're grumbling, but, but it's a choice, right? You can, use that approach or you could kind of like reframe it and be like, oh my gosh, this is, this is just like a wild, fun adventure. And I have no idea what we're doing, but this is super fun figuring it out together. Yeah. And I really wanted to capture that feeling. But, you know, as you, as you know, I am not East African. I am not a Swahili speaker Mm -hmm. and I did not feel like it was my story to write. Mm-hmm. even though the experience was real and it happened to me. Right. So I remember going back to Kenya after my trip and talking to my Kenyan friends, telling them to write the story for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want this. I, I just want to see the story come to life. It's in my head. And I tell them all the details and I'm like, well, I can't write it because I'm not from this part of the world. And they're like, well, Nas, it's it's okay. Like you basically have it, and you, like you're telling us what to write. You might as well write it yourself. And, <laughs> and you were there, and you were right? there. You were there. yeah, you were there. So it, even though it might not feel like you have a place, or it might feel like you are, I don't know, 
being an imposter in that situation. Right. You were literally on that bus. Like you were one of the people. Yeah. That experienced that. Yeah. But I still wasn't convinced. And Mm -hmm. the thing that convinced me was I, I went to Zanzibar again another time. And the next time that I went, I was on a ferry boat ride from Zanzibar to Dar es Salaam. And it's like the Staten Island Ferry. There's a lot of people. It's a commuter mode of transportation. And there's like a big TV screen in the background. And there was a five-year-old kid standing right in front of me with his family, his mom, his little sister. And all of a sudden on the screen, Al Jazeera came on the news. And it was the stereotypical, you know, image of a terrorist group. I won't say which one, but they were on trucks, standing on trucks, and they were holding on holding flags that had Arabic on him. And the little boy turned to the screen and pointed and was super excited, as most five-year-olds are when they see trucks on TV. And he was like, oh, look, mom, Islam is on TV. And, you know, it was this group that, you know, was destroying the world, right? Yeah. And he didn't know that, of course. He's five. All he sees is the trucks. And my heart just broke into a million pieces. And I just remember thinking at that moment, I I really want to write something that's fun and joyful, you know, ignites the hearts and lights up the spirit so that a kid like him can point and say, Mom, look, Islam. And it's something wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that kind of was the green light that made me feel like, you know what? I'm going to write this story and I'm going to write it for him. And I'm going to write it for for just all the kids who I hope can can have this feeling of joy when they yeah. they point at someone wearing a hijab or, you know, Arabic letters or something like that and their association is something fun and giggly and wiggles and And it reminds them that there's room for everyone. So, Oh, that's a beautiful, thank you for all of that context. That's a beautiful way that this all came together. And now a word from our sponsor, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Oh yeah, HHS has still got it. Sure, I mean, if you count preventing COVID as the cure for the post-holiday blues. Well, I guess it is that time again to encourage everyone to get their COVID vaccine. Oh yeah, vaccines. <laughs> you know, getting my vaccine card updates is like getting my subway card punched. If only it came with a free sandwich. I think it did for a while, uh, at least free donuts. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Sharon, getting your latest updated COVID vaccine is even better, especially if it means getting more time to safely catch up with your family. Ah, yes. Updated vaccines now protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron, which means we all have more time to enjoy that home cooking and mom dishes that we've all been craving. Yeah, these latest vaccines are here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special. Boom, just did it. Uh, did what? Find for a new year gift for all your family, friends, and favorite podcast co-hosts? No, even better, I just scheduled my free vaccine today. Oh snap, that was pretty easy. Damn straight. Find updated COVID vaccines for everyone six months plus at vaccines.gov. COVID is serious stuff, and we want to make sure all of you are ridiculously thoughtful, stylish, hip, and favorite podcast listeners are getting the latest and greatest COVID vaccines. That's right, Sharon. So we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. 
Let's all do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities this holiday season. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find the latest vaccines near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We have a But now, back to our show. I have a more practical question, though. Like, Mm -hmm. how did that actually become a book? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it takes a village. I'm learning it takes like a planet, really, to to put anything together. And also, I think, you know, we've we've hosted other authors on this this show. Mm -hmm. And especially being a first-time writer, right? Like, this was your very first any kind of book that you were looking to get published. Yes. It's not... And maybe for you, it was great. So I'd love to hear that too. But there's probably some rejection before things get accepted and before, you know, you get a green light to go ahead. So what was that process like? Like, how did you find the right people? How did you even get it into some draft form? Like, talk to me about that process of actually creating a children's book for the first time. I think the lucky thing was that I didn't initially have an expectation Mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted a story to come to life in the best way possible. Yeah. That was for sure. Yeah. Prior to going to Kenya, I actually had a very dear friend, Ruth Foreman, who is an author, and she had offered a writing class. And I had told her years ago, like, oh my gosh, I have all these stories in my head. I would love to bring them to life. But it was, again, it was like flying to the moon, right? Yep. But I took a I took a class with her before I had left for Kenya. And she was the first person who looked at one of my stories and said, I think you can publish this. And, you know, no one had seriously said that to me before. And I, I didn't know what that meant or what that might look like. But she kind of told me a little bit about, okay, this is how you do a query letter. I had also run into Henna Khan, who's an incredible author, also paved the way for a lot of people in the South Asian and Muslim community. Um, I had met her at a library one time and she took time out to just say hi. And I told her about one of my stories and we just chatted. And so I I think I've had, I've been really lucky to have people just be very encouraging and you just need one person to believe in you. But again, it was a huge journey because I was submitting stories for years after Ruth told me that I could, but I didn't even get rejection letters. I just got silence. Huh. You know, it was like I would send something off and it would go into the ether and I had no idea whether they even received it. Right. So I was really excited when I got my first rejection. (laughs) Because you're like, someone got it and they read it. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, someone read it. It's a reaction. Oh my goodness. You're so funny. (laughs) So that was, yeah, I got, you know, it's funny. People could talk about like, oh, I got a hundred rejections. I was like, I got one. Yeah. And it was so exciting because it was it was someone responded. It validated. Yeah, validated that it was actually received on yeah. the other end. Yeah. Everything else was just it disappeared into the ether. Right, right. So I remember calling Ruth from Kenya, you know, after submitting many, many, many <laughs> submissions of the same story. But, you know, and she and I was like, I'm I'm delusional. I am completely delusional. And she just I think you just need that one person to tell you, just keep going. Yeah. You know, I believe in you. Yeah. And, you know, I had nothing to lose. And so you got that first rejection. How long from there before it got accepted? I don't know the exact timeline, but 
my story idea came in 2015. That was when the idea first was planted. Okay. I think I started writing in 2016. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my book was published last year in 2021. So it's been a journey. Five or six years. Yeah. Yeah. But wow. there was a moment, I think it was when, when there was the Muslim ban that happened. And there was an article that I saw that my aunt saw actually about agents being open to Muslim voices and being interested. And so I was like, huh. And I think there was like a list of maybe 200 to 300 agents who said, okay, we're going to, we're, we're going to open up our inbox to these new voices possibly. So I, I sent, I found an agent through there and then kind of sent in the story which actually was not room for everyone. It was another interfaith-oriented story. And yeah, even then, I think I, I, I sent it to someone. She read it. She was like, oh, this is lovely. Thank you so much. You know, but that was it, you know. But I met Lily Gehermani, who's my current agent right now. And, you know, she said, oh, this is nice. Do you have anything else? And she actually did not want the original story that I sent her. And then I had room for everyone was my backup. So I, I sent that to her and then I don't think I heard from her for maybe two, three months. And then I followed up and it was a lot of back and forth, but yeah, eventually she said yes. And I think the first thing she said was, you know, would you like to sign a contract and I could be your agent? And I was like, well, I don't know how much does an agent cost? Like I didn't know anything. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 that's not how it works. You know, it you, I, I don't make anything if you don't make anything. Right. I was like, wait, why would you want to sign a contract with me? I'm a nobody. Like, what? That is so funny. So this has just all been a big, (laughs) it's like someone threw me on a unicorn and I've just been riding and I, I don't know how I'm here, but I'm so grateful. I love that. So grateful. It's like, it's, it's the real life version of that bus. You're just like, you're giggling. There's just so much fun. All these people are getting piled in. It's just, that's so funny. I can imagine that kind of just like, yeah, how how does it all work? Well, that's amazing. And so the book came out in 2021, like you mentioned. Yeah, about a year ago. I think the exact date, I don't know why I know this, was November 9th. Yeah, I'm impressed. <laughs> it just stood out in my head. So literally it's been about just a little over a year. Yeah. And you've gained so much traction since then. I guess so. I have, I mean, again, like, even in the very beginning, I, I was, I was worried. Yeah. I was worried that, you know, people would question why did she write this book and, mm-hmm. you know, who, who was she to write a book about Zanzibar and all these things. And, you know, that's me being very honest about, I, I wasn't interested in it spreading out. You know, I just wanted, I thought, okay, friends, family, and a couple of Islamic schools might be interested in this. I had yeah, no idea, yeah. no idea it would yeah. be on like a Christmas list or something. That's so amazing. And have you gotten any pushback like that? Has anyone, I don't know, just have you gotten any kind of pushback about the book or about your relationship with the story that you're telling in the book? No, none. Right. Everyone has been yeah. so encouraging. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a reminder that, you know, so often we've been surrounded by these narratives of fear and that you know, the world is not a friendly place. And, and I think we have silenced ourselves so many times 
Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. that whole, you know, analysis paralysis thing. And, and I think this was a real reminder to, I, I, I think I've often grown up feeling like I can't make a mistake, right? It's either I mm-hmm. nail it or I stay silent. Right. And even, yeah. even with doing this podcast with you, to be honest, I, I was talking to my friend just a few days ago and I'm like, why did I sign up to do this? Because either I want to, I want to nail it or I don't want to do it at all. Right. And, totally. you know, I think that's part of my learning journey is I, I, I just have to try things and, mm-hmm. you know, be okay with the flaws that come with learning and the mistakes right. and the falls that come with learning. And, you know, I think we all are on that journey of learning together. And, you know, so again, I'm so grateful to you and also to Reading is Fundamental. They're, they're the organization that helped set this podcast up. And like I said, I've just been, I've just been humbled and grateful that there's all these people who have been incredibly supportive. Yeah. People I didn't expect. I think one of my most surprising, uh, my neighbor is Christian scientist and she knocked on my door last year and she's like, I just got the magazine, the Christian science, you know, monitor weekly magazine and yeah, your book is in it. <laughs> no way. What? <laughs> I don't understand. Like unable to compute. Right. It transcends all all barriers. I, I guess. I <laughs> all guess. boundaries, all barriers. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think, you know, you're touching on something that a lot of us experience and that's imposter syndrome, right? It's like a lot of us are in situations where we just feel like we either don't belong there. We might not deserve to be there. We might not be, maybe we never even anticipated being there, whatever, you know, whatever that could be. And there is this fear of, oh gosh, what if they find me out, right? Like, oh goodness, what if, you know, what if I do get a, a, a negative critic review about about this and they realize I, you know, I, I'm not native to the country that I'm writing about or or anything like that. And so much of that, to your point, is just, it's in our own heads because when you are creating something like you've done, Nas, where you've, you're telling a story with the intention to bring people together, it's almost impossible for anybody to find a negative reason, you know, to say anything bad about that. Like there's, there's nothing about what you're doing that I think anybody could criticize. Like, like your intentions are so pure and your objective is to bring people together. The book itself is named Room for Everyone. You know, like it would just be completely against all of the values and the principles of of what this initiative and this project. I mean, I'm making it sound so much more like a book. And I want to get to that in a second. So it, it would just be completely anti, like just just completely against what you are. It would conflict with what you're trying to achieve. Well thank you for for seeing that. And yeah. Yeah. And so speaking of platform and, and movement and initiative, like what have you thought about what happens next? Have you started to put anything in place to make this more than a book? What do you mean by that? I don't know. Like, I think this is, I feel like it could be a global movement or at the very least, have you thought about book two? Maybe that's a better, <laughs> have you thought about, about your next book? Maybe that's the better question to ask. I guess there's, there's a combination. I mean, sometimes I have these visions of like, oh my gosh, it would be really cool to make like a board game, like those, you know, collaborative 
board games where everyone has to work together towards a common goal and like the buttons yeah. going through the beach, you know, to the beach. And I mean, I have like a ukulele song that goes with the book. So I'm hoping to, you know, learn how to write sheet music so I can post that up. And I, I love that an opportunity to learn yeah. new things. I, you know, I didn't have an Instagram account. I, I when, when the book first came out, I, I was, told to do all these things that I was like, I don't know. I don't even know what that means, much less how to do it. And so I, I think it's just been really fun to, to learn. Yeah. And my hope is that like room for everyone inspires people to, you know, to make room for all kinds of things in their life. It sounds really cheesy, but it's true. Yeah. I, I have a coworker. I work at a, an, an open book foundation. It's, we, it's a literacy nonprofit in DC that does wonderful, wonderful work. Um, we bring authors and illustrators to title one schools in the area. And one of my coworkers is an artist and she does shadow puppet shows and things like that. And she was like, oh my gosh, room for everyone could be a shadow puppet show. And, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of things I play around with for fun and who knows what will actually like manifest into something real. I do have a second book hopefully coming out and we don't have a date yet, but it's inspired by a, a woman that I knew in Egypt who was of European descent and she had this beach house on the Mediterranean and she would invite some of her staff to the beach house every, every two to three weeks. And I remember going up to the beach house and oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here. This is so generous of you. And I asked her, what inspired you to start doing this? Because she would not just bring teachers. She would bring service staff and, you know, drivers and other people that, you know, typically a director of a school wouldn't invite to their personal home. Yeah. Up Mediterranean. And she said to me, you know, I was born the day that World War II ended and my family and I didn't have much. In fact, me and my grandmother would share one egg once a week. And I remember thinking to myself, when I have more to share, I will. And that story was told to me in, you know, maybe 2016 or 17. And it really stuck with me, this yeah. image of this girl and her grandmother sharing one egg. So I played around with that. And so that I'm going to have another story coming out that's based around the idea of generosity and this one egg that feeds like all these guests that come to a house and it'll be fun and there'll be cooking involved. And, um, Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. So, so that's hopefully the next project in terms of writing. And it's also a children's book. And it'll, it'll be a children's book. Yeah. That's very fun. I love that. And I like, I love how you just buried the lead too. Like you started off being like, I don't know. Well, actually I do have a second book <laughs> in the works. We just haven't decided on a release date yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're so humble. Okay. So if we were to turn back the clock, mm -hmm. maybe I'm trying to think like, do we go back to Alabama? Do we go farther back to Saudi Arabia? Do we go all the way back to India? But if we were to turn back the clock and you could meet the younger version of yourself, what's advice that you would give to little Nas today? I think I would say... It's okay to have more questions than answers. Yeah. And that we're all learning all the time. And not knowing can be half the fun. Yeah. Kind of like being on that bus with everyone. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's a journey, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it can be fun not to know exactly how it's going to go. 
Exactly. Or even where you're headed, right? Yeah, where you're going <laughs> to land, all of those things. That's really great. I have one last question before we move to speed round because I saw this in your fun facts and I'm so curious about it. So oh, okay. you mentioned that you read people's coffee cups. <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> so this is something I, I picked up while living in the Middle East. Yeah. So there are these, you know, different traditions have all kinds of kind of like Oracle oriented traditions and practices. But in the Middle East, there are these coffee cups where the, the grains kind of stick to the coffee cup. Sorry, I'm repeating one. Yeah. And yeah. so you yeah. drink it and then someone turns it over and you kind of let it settle and then you look into it and then you start kind of deciphering the shapes that you see. And sometimes you can see letters or just images. And then the idea or intention is to then just see what you see and share it with whoever might want to hear it and yeah, and to see if there's anything there that resonates with them. And I think it's just like a wow. magical, intimate way to connect with someone. And, you know, it's for fun. Of course. Well, have you ever, have you ever predicted something that actually came true? Like, are you, are you pretty accurate with your fortune telling? So I, I don't think of it as fortune telling. I think, I think yeah. that's one way to approach it. Mm -hmm. The intention that I kind of go into it with is what would be helpful for this person to hear right now? Interesting. Okay. So next time I need a, a confidence booster or I just have to feel really good about myself, I'm going to call you. I'm going to FaceTime with you <laughs> and I'm going to show you what's left in my coffee cup. <laughs> well, anytime you're in DC, you're more than welcome to come by for a cup of I'm coffee come by. and a reading. I'm just going to be like, Naz, I need a reading. I just really need to know that things are going to be okay. <laughs> Here's my Starbucks cup. <laughs> love it. Love it. It's great. It's like, it's just a, it's, it's a more unique way It's reading the tea leaves, right? It's, you're reading the coffee grinds. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Nas, I've loved our conversation and I think now it's time for speed round. Are you ready for the speed round? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a fast thinker or a fast talker, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. And Roman always says no one's ever ready. And really speed round takes longer sometimes than our other parts of the conversation. So no pressure. Okay. <laughs> as long as you're not looking for like a quick sound bite, I can be... No. Okay. <laughs> no. But if you take too long, I might speed you up. So let's see what happens. Um, what's one thing about you that no one expects? I think most people expect me to know how to read or write in several languages. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know my alphabet in Hindi, and I don't know how to write my name. So actually, Rally to Read 100, which is the program that I'm a part of, they encourage people to read 100 books by March 31st. Yeah. And my goal is actually to learn my letters in Hindi by March 31st as part of my Ooh. reading goal and learn how to write my name. I love that. You'll have to keep us posted on how that goes. That's so great. I'll let you know. We're, we're big supporters of Rally to Read too, and we'll make sure we drop some links in, into our show notes for the listeners so they can participate as well. Awesome. What is a book, movie, or television show with characters that you relate to? Life of Pi. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that I... I can't remember if I was in high school or college, but I remember reading it and then telling my family members, if you want to understand who I am, you should read this book. 
And I think one of my relatives read it and she was like, I don't get it. I don't, oh. I still don't get what you're talking about. And I'm right, so right. I, I understand you less now. <laughs> but yeah, that was definitely one of the first books where I, I really felt like, oh my gosh, that's me. And I, yeah, I, I just fell in love with the character and just the whole journey. And it's one of those books that I, I go back to. Yeah. It feels different every time. It's so great. It's a really good book. Well, I've also wanted to say in terms of, because I think that kind of really hit my ethnic and religious identity, mm-hmm. but in terms of being a third culture kid, a book that I that I really saw myself in is The Girl Who Fell to Earth, and it's a memoir by Sophia Almeria, who's Guthrie, actually, and we met in Cairo, and it was the first time that I just saw someone just courageously and bravely share the various cultures that they're a part of without hiding any part of themselves. Yeah. And that kind of blew me away. And, and just being able to see another third culture kid in that way was really wonderful. Yeah, that's great. We'll put that in the show notes too. Thank you for that recommendation. What is your favorite mom dish? Biryani mm-hmm. with tomato chutney. Yum. So biryani is like a traditional rice yep. dish and people can make it with chicken or mutton or vegetarian. There's all kinds of versions and everyone's regional specialty is usually their favorite. <laughs> you know, yeah. So there's like yeah. biryani wars, but definitely when I go home, like I have to have my biryani and I have to have my mom's tomato chutney, like tomato chutney. Sounds good. Sounds so good. And what's your least favorite food? So what's something that if you saw it on a menu, you were like, you'd be saying, no way, I'm not, I'm not getting that. I really try to be, I try to think of myself as an open-minded person. Yeah. But I remember the first time I was like, I can't do this, is I went to my friend's house and her dad served me this traditional Peruvian tongue stew. Oof, yeah. And there was just this tongue sitting in the bowl and I I was like, I have to be a good guest. It was the first time that I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't think I can eat this. Did you eat other parts of the stew? I think I, yeah, I had the broth and I had other things. Okay. I couldn't, I, I just. You couldn't have the actual tongue part. I did not. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't remember what cuisine I was eating, but I, I had tongue once as well. And what really like flipped me out was like the texture of it, Right. The taste buds. I don't know. I don't I'm know. getting squinamish. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's. There's other because I've had like other things like tripe where it's not that it's similar, but like we, you know, it's just a different texture. But mm-hmm. I don't know tongue. I'm with you on the tongue thing. <laughs> and I'm moving towards vegetarianism, anyways. Yeah. But you know, if I see a non-veg dish, I'm, I'm, it doesn't make me squeamish. But I I think the spare parts, for whatever reason, I I still get a little like. Wiggly in my seat. Yeah. Yeah. Even though there should be room for everyone, I'm not there, there yet. There should be. You're right. There should be room for everything <laughs> on, on your it. plate, Nas. I'm working on it. <laughs> Who is someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast? Besides me, of course. <laughs> Raman, I should say, right? Yeah, Raman, there there we go. We, I, I thought we were going to guilt trip him more. I forgot to do that. So yes, there's the answer. Remen Segel, you should be the one that she talks to on the podcast. 
<laughs> part two. Um, no, but part if, two. if this was a year ago, I think I would have said Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh-huh. He was the one person who I just, you know, felt like I, if I could just be in the same space with him, like my life would change. I, yeah. I, I felt that way for a very long time. And I was really heartbroken when he passed away. Um, yeah. In January of 2022. But it also, this question makes me think of, you know, my dad, actually. Hmm. I, you know, first I was like, oh yeah, you typically want to like interview a famous person, right? Right, right. But my dad never talks about like partition or like a certain time period of his life. And maybe a year ago, my nephew asked, started asking him questions and it was kind of surprising. You know, my dad opened up a little bit Mm -hmm. and I think that it would be really interesting to talk to him on a podcast because there's nowhere for him to hide, (laughs) you know? Right. And I think he might, it might be a time where I'm mature enough and he's, he's at a point in his life where maybe we can like have a real conversation about some of the historical things he's witnessed and, you know, his journey as, you know, an Indian 16-year-old, right. not knowing a word of German, you know, going to ger- post-World War II Germany and what that was like. And I remember I had some German friends here in D.C. who had parents who would talk about what life was like for them, right, when they were younger. But they could ask my dad, and my dad suddenly opened up about his his time there. And I've always wanted to kind of write a book about a friendship between him and one of his Hindu friends who they met in Germany and what that was like to, to kind of develop that friendship yeah. at that time. Because also now there's all these narratives about people living in these siloed communities and my, because my parents are religious minorities in their country of origin also. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just really want to explore, you know, stories of friendship that cut across everything. Yeah, I totally think you should do that. I mean, this show actually started because Raman, who's not here, again, hint, hint, <laughs> when he turned 40, he interviewed 40 of his closest friends or just 40 of his co- people in his network. Really? And he asked them the same series of questions. And they were questions like, what do you remember about how we met? Or what was your first impression of me? And he was basically doing like, it was an audio journal of these people that he had known over his lifetime and getting a sense of their impression, right? Of, of that relationship. And, and I was one of the people he had interviewed and I remember one being like, oh my God, why do I have to do this? Okay. Well, it's his 40th birthday thing. And like, I should support, you know, like it was like one of those things like, oh great. No, I gotta, I gotta have some weird conversation with someone that, and he and I weren't that close either. And I was like, I don't know why Remen's included me on this list, but in that dialogue, we got to know each other so well because I was, he was asking me questions that I never would have talked to him about directly. You know, like how often do you actually sit down with a friend and you're like, remember when we met, you know, 10 years ago, three years ago, yesterday, what was your first impression? Like those types of questions are just things that don't get addressed. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think the same thing with immigrant parents or just like other older folks in, in our families, like my grandfather, now we are getting way off speed round, but you're just triggering like <laughs> these memories for me. Like my grandfather, when he passed away, we found all of these documents from when he had first immigrated to the US. And there were things that we had 
never even known about his experience, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and it was just fascinating because I was like, gosh, I really wish that he had mentioned this or, or that we had even found whatever it was like a box of, you know, a box of old, it was like photographs or there's just kind of like letters and, and just other things. There's like a part of an ID, but it wasn't clear. Like, was it his identification? Was it someone else's? And if, if we had only had the chance to sit him down and be like, grandpa, what is this? Right. Or tell me a story about what your life was like when you were 15 coming over with fake papers on a boat. How, like, how long did that take? And what was that like? And I, he's gone now, so I can't do that anymore. And I really think you should sit down with your dad. And now that you're a podcast pro and you have a microphone, (laughs) I think that could just be even if it's just for you to keep, oh like, yeah, yeah. There's no better time, right, than to just sit down and list out 20 questions that Dad would have never, ever on his own talked about with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for for making me think about the possibility. Yeah, you can do that after you learn Hindi. There, <laughs> I've got like lots of life projects for you. I'm lining them up for you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, it's never ending. Lifelong learner for sure. Exactly. Okay, last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? So I'll, I often turn to Rumi for the answers for the big questions. And the poem that comes to mind is he has a poem about the universe being inside of you. And I think being a modern minority is about remembering that, that the entire universe is inside of you and that you are the universe in ecstatic motion. Let your life on fire to set your life on fire. I I think it's really about the freedom to choose your personal and professional direction in a way that trusts that the universe is a loving and kind place. I think this is something I'm trying to strive towards. It's definitely an ideal for me. I, I still feel like I'm trying to be the model minority, to be honest. And so you know, when I first heard the title of your podcast, Modern Minority, I really had to sit with myself and think about what that means and what I want it to mean. Yeah. And I'm still, I'm still figuring that out because I'm still trying to shed that idea of I have to, I have to say the right thing. I have to do the right Mm -hmm. thing. I have to come up with that sound bite that's going to be perfect for a podcast when I answer that question. (laughs) You know, and that's, I think, what it means for me to be a modern minority is to let go of that fear. Yeah. And to jump in and accept that there are universes inside of me and and that I am in ecstatic motion and all that that means and embracing all that that means without fear. That's such a beautiful answer. And uh, I love how you are consistently going back to poetry. That's something else I've noticed about you in the course of this conversation. And so I wonder if after you're done with the second book and you've learned Hindi and you've (laughs) interviewed dad, if maybe there's poetry in your future. I mean, who knows? I I mean, I have, yeah, I have many poems. I think we all do. They're just not necessarily for public consumption. Sure. Of course. But it would be lovely to, to connect with people on that in that way. I think poetry can describe things that we're not able to with regular language. Yeah. So I'm grateful I to agree. all the poets out there. <laughs> I agree. And maybe we'll see that in your coffee grinds. <laughs> you never know. You never know. <laughs> 
Well, Naz, thank you so much. It was so great to spend this time with you. I'm sorry that Roman missed out on this one, but thank you so much for being here. And we're looking forward to having you back when you're ready again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was such an honor and just such a delight. And again, it's first time. So thank you for being part of the part of the journey and part of the wild ride. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.